Welcome to The Quill and Sword, a podcast series offered by the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School designed to explore legal challenges from across the JAG Corps' core competencies. Today, the Center for Law and Military Operations, CLAMO, welcomes Colonel Justin Reese and Major Promotable Jason Young from the Joint Multinational Readiness Center, or JMRC. I say Major Promotable Jason Young to highlight the caliber of officer we put in these senior OCT positions. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Jason Elbert, the director of CLAMO, and we're also joined by Sergeant First Class Trey Angle, the CLAMO non-commissioned officer in charge. Colonel Reese is the commander operations group at JMRC, and Jason is the JMRC senior legal observer coach trainer, OCT. Sergeant First Class Trey Angle and I are fortunate to join these tremendous leaders in Hohenfels, Germany to record this episode. Over the next 15 or 20 minutes, we'll explore the Brigade Commander, Brigade Judge Advocate, and Brigade Legal Section relationship. Colonel Reese, thank you for joining us. After commanding at multiple levels and being in the unique position to observe brigade rotations and multinational engagements at JMRC, any initial thoughts on the value of a uniformed legal team at the brigade level? Well, absolutely. Uh, First, I'd just like to say uh, thanks for having me, Major Young. afforded us the opportunity to contribute to this dialogue and thanks to both you and Sarn Angle for what you do for our Army. The military legal advisor I think is absolutely necessary in all phases of, uh, of the life cycle of a military organization, you know, from the garrison environment through the train up to the employment to fulfill in our case our Title 10 responsibilities and then bringing the team back home. And that importance obviously is, uh, you know, because we behave and conduct ourselves in accordance with laws, rules, regulations, and policies, and and they help provide guardrails to uh, to those that we may not be aware of as it comes to the conduct of our formations in combat, or those that we might not we not we might not be aware of you know, all the options resident in our 600-20 authorities and they are a good sounding board to help remind us of that, that we usually, in most set of circumstances, have a, a wide array of options um, available to us given our command authorities. Sir, uh, you called us a military legal advisor and one of the things that we talked about early in our relationship was, you know, thinking out loud and talking about ideas not on the agenda. Why is that important to you, sir? So this relationship between a military legal advisor and a commander has got to be a relationship built on trust. And you get to that trust, you know, not by default because somebody was slated to command in a certain brigade and a BJA was assigned in a manning cycle to that brigade. But you get to that through uh, being able to get to know each other and and how each other thinks. And it's not so the legal advisor can shape their recommendations to please their boss. It's understanding how they need to prepare themselves to present the range of options that exist to the commander and make a recommendation within those range of options. So to understand how a military legal advisor thinks, comes to a conclusion, or pursues a line of logic based on a command of the facts to get to a recommendation, you know, it's helpful to hear them talk through that out loud. 
What did you take into consideration? How much weight did you apply to which aspect of the investigation? And I think it's just as uh, helpful for that, co that military legal advisor to hear a commander think through those aspects out loud as well. It, uh, it, it assists, one, that military legal advisor is armed with you know how a commander generally thinks about certain things and he can help afford inform subordinate commanders at echelon as he's given legal advice throughout the uh, the brigade not just to the commander it also lends itself to uh, to creating a dialogue not just focused on the you know the stack of, of case files you know I always we spend a lot of time talking about topics that are not associated with his stack of case files you know because it it gives you some pretty good insight on a, on a on a person's perspective of the world so to speak you know how they take a position in some of the law of armed conflict things we talked about how you've taken a position how you defend that position you know sharpen your argument and how do you get to a conclusion? And uh, those are always helpful in, in being able to know that about your legal advisor. And I think it's helpful for them to know about uh, that from the commander so that it's not simply a transactional relationship based upon transactional meetings. Here's a, uh, here's a recommendation to the General Court Martial Convening Authority. I just need you to sign. And then we'll get to the next one and the one after that. And then it's over. Sir, so you said sharpen the argument, and one of the things that I appreciate about our relationship is that there, we're not approaching the problem from the same perspective, and we do have that back and forth, and there's not always agreement. Um, but through that process, we're sharpening the argument. You know, we're sharpening the decision, so you're arriving at what's the best case for the soldier and for the army, and, and so. I just want to say thank you for allowing us to have that, that free-flowing dialogue where, where we're really working towards how do we make the best decision in this particular action. In my, in my mind, I'm always trying to balance the, uh, the interests of the service member with the interests of the unit and the interests of the Army. And so that's an incident, an allegation, or an investigation is very discreet and focused on one thing the allegation and the subject's role in regards to that. But as the options are presented to a commander, as this same investigation moves through adjudication, those interests of the unit and the Army are going to come into play as well, more so than they have during the course of the investigation. So I think it's uh, being able to have that dialogue and challenge each other is absolutely critical to ensuring that, you know, one, it, you know, we're maintaining precedence and good order and discipline in the organization. And, uh, and two, and if I would think that you are taking a dialogue to pre-bake the cake, to sell me the recommendation I want to hear, I'd call you on that. Because, you know, I want to be challenged as well in, uh, in my approach. Because, you know, again, a command of the facts that walks into the room with the legal advisor he may offer up different insights, you know, versus I, I hooked on to the first two or three facts of a particular investigation and I'm ready to make a decision. And him being able to walk a commander back from that decision and offering those additional insights, you know, is absolutely fundamental to how this thing gets adjudicated in a fair manner.
when I first came into the Army, they taught us this acronym for what you're getting at, CAB, you. You should think about the crime, the accused, the victim, and the unit as you make that decision. Gentlemen, any advice to new brigade judge advocates trying to establish that level of trust with their commander? Is, is that a battle rhythm, rhythm event? Is it, is it something else? How, how do you gain yeah. that? Depending on how receptive their commander is, you know, they got to fight to get that battle rhythm touch point once a week. Even if it's a high caseload or a low caseload that week, just to get that battle rhythm event in. And then also be able to establish the level of access to where if things occur outside of that, can they get into the commander to see them and inform the commander? Well, the answer should be yes, but that all has to be established in the beginning. You know, it should be at least uh, you know, a, a weekly touch point that is protected and it occurs every week. And then as things arise or as updates are made or as things just need to be moved through a process so we're not waiting, you know, another seven days to go by before we can move this packet from one gate to the next, they should have the ability to do the walkthroughs in with the commanders as they see necessary. Yes, sir, earlier you mentioned uh, the law of armed conflict. I think you know that that's one of the things that I'm, I'm passionate about. Before we started the podcast, we had a little pre, pre-brief where we were talking about how you expect to interface with judge advocates in dispersed operations and large-scale combat operations. Uh, could you kind of explain or describe the, the, your view on that, sir? Yeah, my view on, uh, you know, with select members of my team, you know, challenge with being distributed um, for the sake of survivability or just um, because the inherent nature of the operation you're embarking upon is that we focus the right people in the right place during certain events. You know, so a battle rhythm event that usually occurs in a BCT conducting operations is a targeting cycle. Well, that would be an event that I'd want the military legal advisor to attend. There may be a critical phase of an operation during the execution of um, ground combat and I may want the military legal advisor with me during that critical phase of the operation. There's no like set template on where they should be and when. I think it's up to that commander to exercise his discretion as he thinks through the planning phases and then the execution of the military operation on who he needs with him you know, to make those critical decisions at critical moments. Um, and sometimes those can occur in the planning process, and sometimes those occur during the execution of an operation. And so, you know, one of the things that, that I hit on a lot, and, and I'm thankful that you gave me the opportunity to do a law of armed conflict brief here at JMRC, T7s and above, is, you know, during COIN, the last 20 years of COIN, uh, lawyers and leaders and staff sections, the fire support coordinator, they got used to a lot of operational control tools that were available to us in COIN, like the collateral damage methodology and tying a CD5 decision to a certain rank. And we had, was able to have a lot more structure around it. But as we look forward to large-scale combat operations, kind of two questions here. One, how important do you think our LOAC training was to our OCTs so they can train the next generation on how to fight LISCO while 
doing it in compliance with with the law. Uh, and then, uh, you know, second question, um, how would you help get, you know, lawyers out and about so they have a better understanding of what that looks like? Yeah, for the first part, I think it was, you know, it's absolutely invaluable because the last time a junior officer may have seen LOAC type verbiage might have been at their commissioning source in a roundabout Army 101 class. I think it's important to, uh, to provide to our junior officers and to provide to our other officers who uh, may have an overwhelming um, coin experience in the background of their career and, and refreshing them on just how broad their authorities are and then what are the guardrails to look for when conducting large-scale ground combat operations. You know, it's invaluable and it's probably one of those things that needs to be touched on you know, at least annually, if not on a semi-annual basis, based on the number of leader transitions in an organization. How would you, um, as a brigade commander, how would you make sure if you have a judge advocate that maybe doesn't have the LOAC understanding or experience, how would you help develop them so they can uh, enable your organization to conduct uh, large-scale combat operations? Oh, well, one of the easiest ways is to just have a dialogue referencing vignettes because we have the examples from history. What, what do you think about this? And, and what do you think about the employment of that? And what do you think about, I mean, because he not only, or she not only has to know what are the limits and expectations of our behavior in combat, but having an understanding of LOAC will also assist them in, in helping understand how that adversary will attempt to take advantage of it. And so you're seeing it, the military legal advisor, I believe, has to see it from two perspectives. Our, our fundamental obligations as a member of the United States Army, but then how our adversary will attempt to exploit that. And you've seen, the, and again, we can go back to a number of examples where whether it's using human shields or positioning weapon systems in, uh, in sensitive site locations where they're trying to manipulate LOAC in an episodic manner to take advantage of our uh, our steadfast adherence to it. Yes, sir. I'm happy you mentioned vignettes because that is one of the ways that we try to coach coming into to JMRC. You know, the first piece of advice that I provide to a brigade judge advocate is is pull your brigade commander aside, get the fist cord in a room, get your field artillery intel officer in a room, your targeting officer in a room, and just start working through some scenarios uh, so you can get a feel for the brigade commander's risk tolerance level. Because we're we're in an area, you know, with large-scale combat operations, we're not going to have the well-defined guardrails that we did in COIN. And so it's really imperative on those key leaders, you know, probably the XO uh, and the, the three in there too, so they can see, okay, if we locate a battery of 2S-19s in a populated area, you know, what's the brigade commander's guidance going to be? You know, can we work down the HPTL here and how the brigade commander would think about authorizing fires into a populated area? Uh, so it's really good. I think we, we talk about hit those vignettes before you ever deploy. That way you guys have the, the feel. Hit them again in a targeting working group. 
uh, hit him again in the fires rehearsal, and then finally hit him in the car, the combined arms rehearsal, so everyone in the brigade can see and hear how the commander is thinking through conducting, you know, some of the most sensitive targeting that we need to do to, to win in large-scale combat. If there's a CT2 node in a populated area, what kind of information is the brigade commander, the decision maker going to need make, to make that call? I think that's absolutely essential. It's a, as a BJA and you go around the brigade when you arrive and, and you get to meet the battalion or squadron commanders, you know, and get to meet the other leaders at Echelon um, that you'll be working with during your uh, 24 month or so tour inside that brigade. It's absolutely essential that you don't just know the people, but you know the capabilities resident inside of that brigade. So that when, when you are working with those folks that represent those various warfighting functions, you have an appreciation for, for what they're actually saying when they're talking about the delivery of this ordinance or this weapon system and the impact that will have on a battlefield. And I think all of that comes, comes out over time and, uh, and having an understanding, you know, a really rich appreciation for the type of organization that you're a member of. We can be, I think lawyers can be arrogant sometimes. We just think we know the law and that's good enough, um, but that's not the case. W what can we be doing to understand what's going through the commander's mind and, and the capabilities to do our job better? Well, you know, so some of that just goes back to maybe something as simple as vignettes and, and trying to prompt the commander to think out loud a little bit. What are they taking into consideration because it's a vignette, so it's no harm, no foul. But what are they taking into consideration, you know, based on what the two's telling them from the intel side, based on what the four's telling them with class five allocation for the, the battery of uh, Alpha sevens or, or triple sevens or whatever the unit's using. So just uh, getting repetitions with that. In the lead up to NTC for about six weeks, we were doing a targeting meeting based on something the two had designed in an NTC scenario once a week just so that everybody got comfortable talking to each other during a targeting meeting so we didn't spend the first three days with a newly arrived warrant or somebody in the intel section or a new uh, new member of the legal team trying to figure out how to talk to the commander. You know, we'd, uh, we'd already kind of worked our way through all that in the weeks leading up to it. And so, you know, the vignettes or Again, those, you know, those weekly touch points with the commander, you know, hey, sir, so did you see this in the news? What are your thoughts on that? I think those kind of engagements help, uh, help draw some of that out of the commander and help make uh, those staff officers or subordinate commanders kind of more aware of what the commander's taking into account as he works to develop a decision. Stay tuned for our part two of our podcast with Colonel Justin Reese and Major Jason Young from the Joint Multinational Readiness Center, JMRC. See you there. The views expressed or implied on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States Army JAG Corps or other organizations with which the participants are associated or by whom they are employed.